exactly clear There's a man with a gun over there Telling me I got to beware I think it's time we stop Children, what's that sound? Everybody look what's going down I'm C.J. Layton coming to you from inside the Phantom Radio Studios in Lake Wales, Florida home of the premier radio bowling talk show. Long ago, Bowlers Journal International called Phantom Radio a pioneer in the field of bowling podcasts because the show was regularly scheduled at the same time each week. The late Kegel owner, the great John Davis, told Len Nicholson to start this program because, quote, people need to know what you know, end quote. This PBA and bowling writer Hall of Famer has now recorded over 1,200 shows and has featured over 425 guests since 2002. 20 years plus of bowling knowledge, story sharing, and true expertise. Phantom, we need to know what you know. So Phantom fans, here's your host, Len Nicholson, the Phantom. Well, thank you, CJ. And a reminder that Phantom Radio is presented by the Kago Company, the number one lane maintenance company in the world. Well, Phantom fans, this week's special guest has been here with us many times before, and he always gives our listeners a lot of valuable information. He's been a student of the game for over 40 years, and he has developed many of the modern coaching techniques that are currently being taught around the world. He's also known for thinking outside the box in training and helping bowlers of all levels. He once drilled for the best on the Pro Tour for over eight years. He has also developed a glove with Storm called the Power Glove, and he was probably the very first person to recognize that the reactive series of bowling balls were absorbing lane oil from the bowling lane, and he is always busy learning and teaching. So let's get him out here again and see what he's up to. He's well-respected around the world, handled a lot of topics on this show. He told me he's got a surprise. So, Phantom fans, here is Mr. Bill Hall again. How you doing, Mr. Bill? I'm doing great, but, you know, I want to straighten something out real quick. Okay. So, you have no idea what I'm going to be doing this show, correct? I don't know. You told me you had a surprise. Okay, so a lot of times we talk about things that we're going to discuss on the show, and this one, you have absolutely no clue what I'm going to ask you, because this isn't an interview about me. I'm going to interview you. Oh, wow. Well, you know, that's been tried before, and uh, uh, it always humbles me to hear people talk about me, because I'm used to talking about other people. But let me say one thing first, Bards. Uh, You've never, ever failed to let me down in any area of this bowling game, whether it was personal or business. So I want to be the first to wish you a Happy New Year, my friend. I want to wish you a Merry Christmas and a Happy New Year to you and all your loved ones, Blue Oil. But I'm going to get right into this. Okay, well, let me say one more thing. I got to get my resume out here. You might ask me something I forgot about, but no, I... If it's not in my mind, I won't be able to say it because I, I got a pretty good memory, even though I'm an old timer. But with all the different topics you've done over the years, this one, I got the chills on my arm. So go ahead, have at it, my friend. Okay, so 
I mean, it was impossible, literally impossible to develop certain friendships or to create a favorite of whether a player or a personal friend. Now, I've divulged my favorite players. Who, during the, the greatest era of bowling, was your favorite player? Well, that's pretty easy because um, I grew up with a guy that's in the Hall of Fame, PBA and ABC Hall of Fame, uh, Billy Hardwick. He got me interested in the pro tour. I started following him around the 60s, and I en ended up uh, moving in with him in 1969. And then they had all those problems with the lefties and the righties. And so uh, I met Sam Baca along the way. He told me, he says, we're going to start a lane maintenance thing. What do you know about lanes? I said, nothing. He said, that's good because we don't want you having any ideas. I'm going to put down a condition in advance, and I want you to go in and do what I tell you to do. And I thought that was awesome. As, as time went by, Sam became one of my closest friends. I fell in love with three guys right away. Uh, they were known as the G-Squad, Jim Godman, Butch Gearhart, and uh, Don Glover. So those five guys, starting in the late 60s, were always my closest friends out there as time went by. So if you were to have to pick one of those players to throw a strike for your life, which one would it be? Wow. Oh. That's a heck of a question. They were all great. Got to eliminate Sam because he wasn't active on the tour. Billy, he kind of went into a slump in the 70s. Uh, Don Glover was left-handed. He ended, ended up getting disqualified from the tour. Uh, Butch didn't bowl that often. So it comes down to one they call the, the greatest right-handed bowler that I think I've ever seen. It was nothing like the gods, Jim Godman. You know, and people don't realize just how simple his game was and how he could repeat. And when it came to being under pressure, I don't think he knew how to spell the word. He just did what he did. And I think that's one thing that, you know, people don't realize is you look at the generation now and they take what I consider to be a half an hour on the approach. <laughs> you look at the players back then, they set up. And by the time you thought they were done setting up, they were already moving. So, you know, that to me is a very different, that, that to me shows a lot more confidence back then than today. Maybe I'm wrong, could be, but I want to get back to you. People had this idea that you would tell us on the truck what the lanes were like this week and what was what we were to expect. Now, you and I spent countless hours sitting in the bleachers. I want the truth out there. Did you? <laughs> you know what? We spent hours and hours and hours in the practice session, uh, watching the practice session. And the main reason I was there, I was learning what the lanes were like. I know what I put down there, but every every uh, lane surface is different. Uh, sometimes they play differently than we thought they would. So we never even knew how they were going to play. We had a, a, a case history on different distances and different amounts and different volumes, but with all the different surfaces, different kind of lane finish, uh, different topography, we really didn't know ahead of time. So that's the truth. And I room with bowlers. Uh, sometimes they'd ask me what the lanes are like. I said, I don't know. Let's go down to practice session and take a look. 
And that's just it. You know, we, there were patterns now, and that's something I want to get to right now. All right. Uh, what's the question? What people don't realize is you were one of the grandfathers of oil patterns. How much imagination did you have to have in order to think of a pattern instead of just plopping oil out there? How much time did it take you to learn not that art, not that craft, not that science, but the combination of all of it? Wow, that's a huge question. Uh, you had to be alert. You had to watch. You had to know what you were looking at. You had to realize the bowlers that you were watching. turned out that the topography was probably the most important thing, how that lane was shaped, uh, who resurfaced it. Uh, AMF was famous for cutting a uh, low spot on the outside part of the lane. A lot of AMF houses back then were outside shots. Brunswick, they thought it should be inside. So we went to a house. Right away, we knew it was either going to play in or out. Now, the amount of oil we put down would determine uh, how high the scores would be. Every time we'd go into a bowling center, the proprietor, he had his options, what he wanted us to do. Sometimes he wanted high scores. Sometimes he wanted low scores. Some of the proprietors didn't care. So we had other priorities that we had to go by, not only our own, but also from the proprietor and the sponsors. Uh, we had sponsors that were putting up a lot of money. They didn't want to have a, a low-scoring tournament. It would give their product, in their opinion, a black eye. So we go to certain places, they'd say, we want high scores. Uh, my favorite place to go back in the day was in Edmond, Oklahoma, Boulevard Bowl, Richard Altman. I'd go in, he'd have a major, like a U.S. Open or something. I'd say, what do you want? He said, I want them to work. I want them to work hard. This is a major. I don't want them easy. They should earn their strikes. That was one of my favorite places to go. Okay, so... Now that we know your favorite, what was your least favorite? <laughs> well, you know, that, that topic comes up a lot. We used to go to a place in New Orleans. It was called Pelican Lanes. It was down the south, a lot of humidity. Humidity doesn't do good on wood. A lot of the boards are all crooked. They were all standing up on sideways. <laughs> there were cracks in between the boards. The scores are always low there. Uh, they didn't have any kind of a ma lane maintenance uh, program at all. A lot of guys skipped that spot because not only was that one of the places right before the Firestone, but it was also a low-scoring house, and the guys didn't want to go there. They were afraid they were going to get in a slump just by bowling there. But I hate to give a house a bad reputation, but they already had it, and they've closed down ever since. But Pelican Lanes in New Orleans, anybody that bowled in the old days will agree with me on that. I'm positive. Let's go to this next part. As you know, to me, the greatest of all time was Mr. Earl Anthony. There's always this division, if you want to call it that, that you were hoping to make Earl Anthony a superstar. Was he that good or were you actually helping him? Earl was that good. Uh, as a matter of fact, you know, the records never lie. I started in 71, I left in 77. I came back again for about three months in 83, and then I left and came back in 89. Earl won several tournaments when I was running bowling centers in California. I had nothing to do with his greatness. He was just an awesome player. He could repeat 
as well as anybody. In fact, I've been asked this question uh, over the years. Back in the day, yeah, he was, in my eyes, the greatest. Then as time went by, Walter Ray came along, broke pretty much all his records. Of course, bowling balls changed, and there are other reasons, but now there's another guy. <laughs> What's his name? Jason something? <laughs> Jason Belmonte. Yeah. So there's three eras, Earl's era, Walter Ray's era, and Jason's era. All bowled pretty much different balls, different lane surfaces, different oil patterns, and so forth. To me, they're all great. So you brought up an interesting point. The game is environmental. Always has been, always will be. If there's something that you could have done personally going back in time to make the environment more stable versus it's, to me, in my opinion, unstable at the current atmosphere, what would you have changed to make it more stable than it is today? Well, that's another great question. Um, of course, the industry, time always changes. Now they're talking about electric cars. I mean, everything changes over time. Uh, lanes change, weather's change, arm swings change, everything changes. But when it comes down to the uh, dynamics of bowling and making them fair left to right, which was our major job, after a certain part uh, a time, uh, it wasn't only our job to make them fair left to right. We were trying to make them fair right to right because the bowling balls that were coming on, you know, the yellow dots and the LT48s, and then we run into urethane. Pretty soon, some of the righties had an advantage over the other righties. Not only did we hear it about the lefties and the righties, we heard it righties against the righties. If we could have kept the bowling balls all stable without them moving up, with more friction, more hook, more friction and more hook from the ball made us put out more oil. And more oil, it keeps leading to more and more and more. And that became the biggest problem. Nowadays, uh, they're using about four times as much oil as we used to use. We used uh, different kinds of oil back then. And we had to make them a little bit stronger. We added STP to the oil because the balls were hooking so much. And we only put three ounces to a gallon, which is about 2% of an additive. Now they have up to 14 additives in these oils. And they still throw the ball over the left-hand gutter of the righty. So I don't know where it's ever going to stop, but it should have stopped 50 years ago. Yeah, I agree. I mean, I think we're there's so much now. And that's one thing that people might want to learn is the best in the world and the best of all time always played the friction, not the oil, because friction is more dependable. Oil disappears. Boy, you're so right, Bard. You're so right. So let's go to another one. Let's go with Mr. Mark Roth. How great was his natural abilities? Mark Roth, I'll tell you what, there was a guy that changed the whole game. I was there when he came out. He went home, he worked on his game. He used to circle the heads because back where he grew up and learned how to bowl, the heads were in bad shape back in New York. He couldn't throw it down the lane because it would hook too early. So he learned how to throw it out to the right. When he came on the tour, there was a lot more oil and better, better conditioned lanes. He learned now after 
after going back home and working on his game, to go straight through the heads and then break it off in the back end. And when he did that, he learned how to play. And I'll tell you what, he knew somebody taught him about lanes just like they taught Barry Asher. He would get that ball in that ball track, and that ball track is a slight depression, a little bit lower, and uh, he could keep it in that track with speed and power. If the guy hooked the ball a lot and he went outside the ball track, it would never finish. He would leave a bucket. You don't see buckets anymore. You see all kind of weird stuff. But Mark learned how to play the bowling lane, and that was the ball track. And I'll tell you what, for those several years, he was great. Let's go with another player. Let's go Mike Albee versus Steve Cook. Out of those two, which one do you think was more versatile? Oh, boy. Steve was big and strong and powerful. When he had a shot, he could dominate. However, Mike Albee to me, was more versatile because you just look at his record. He's the only guy to win what they call the Super Slam. He won every tournament where there were 56 games. The longer the format, Mike had an advantage. Uh, nobody's ever won all 56-game tournaments uh, like Mike Albee. But, yeah, he. I don't even know how many titles they both had, but I, I know they were both great. Uh, <laughs> Steve Cook, for a big guy like that, just to maintain balance walking the foul line takes a lot of style and credit, but he was awesome. Okay, let's do another matchup, one that I had a little bit of personal involvement with. Let's put a matchup between Norm Duke and Danny Wiseman. <laughs> what were the strengths of their games? What were the weaknesses of their games? Boy, I'll tell you, you know, you, I, I love both those guys. I, I, <laughs> If I was a backer, I'd put all my money that I have in the bank on both of them. They're both awesome players, Hall of Famers. Uh, the only thing that I would do probably differently was I'd probably bet a little bit more on Norm because Norm had the ability to throw that ball dead straight. And I know Danny did too, but not as consistently. Danny was a, a better player from the inside lane as far as I'm concerned. I'd have to look at their records to be sure. <laughs> I'll tell you what, the talent that both of them had were unreal. But when I saw Norm Duke tell somebody in the crowd one day in the practice session he could average 220 by throwing the ball out of a towel, I said, I got to see this. And he would lay the ball in a towel, not put his fingers in it, go to the foul line and release it off the towel, and he averaged 220 for three straight games. I, I said, oh, my God, you know. If I ever put the ball in a towel, I'd drop it in my backswing and I'd get hurt. But he had so much talent. Uh, I would have to give him one more mark as far as uh, versatility. Okay, let's go to this next part. What was, Who was the player that became phenomenal that surprised you the most? Wow. Oh, boy. I'm searching my mind right now, not knowing what you were going to talk about today. Um you know, there was a kid that came on the tour. Billy Hardwick saw him when he was 11 years old, bowling in a junior tournament up in Baltimore. And he said to the kid, when are you going to go on the tour? And he said, as soon as I am old enough, sir. And then years went by. He called up Billy, and he says, I'm ready to go on the tour next year. He says, who's this? And he goes, Joe Berardi. Oh, okay, Joe. Why don't you go out there? So he did. A billion bowl the West Coast, and he asked me to pick him up at the airport. Well, I drove to the LAX. There was Joey had his uh, coat over his shoulder, a single ball bag, 
and just a <laughs> a clothes bag. And he says, are you Joe? Yeah, yeah, I'm Joey. I'm going to bowl on the tour. Okay, kid. You know, so he wasn't even 18. He couldn't bowl. He had to go six weeks before he turned 18, but he bowled every practice session, and he bowled, he won every practice session as far as the amount of strikes he threw. That kid was awesome. I don't know ever what happened to him. I think he retired, but he won most every major in his uh, career, but he was tough. He studied with uh, through Bruce Lee, and he has 150 pounds of muscle. To me, he could have been the greatest of all time or one of the greatest had he stuck it out. Okay, so I know we're getting pretty close to time. We got to be. <laughs> yes, um, we are. <laughs> I want to add my thoughts. My Please thoughts do. are simple. Without the dedication, without the knowledge, without the patience and the willingness to spread the knowledge between you, Sam Baca, and so many others that were behind the scenes. I don't think that the years that I spent on tour from 1980 to 1995, I don't think those years would have been possible for the success of the PBA tour without the involvement. I mean, the list is super, super long because I learned from each and every one of you. So I know it's not much, but I really want to say thank you for everything that you've ever, ever done in bowling. Well, I appreciate that, Bill. And let me say this, uh, the camaraderie out there, and I still call it the golden years of bowling back in that era, uh, with all those guys, I can name them all, uh, Sutar, you know, Sepanich, Ritger, I mean, all of those guys, fantastic. But we all learn from each other. I didn't teach anybody anything that I hadn't learned from somebody else. Um, I'm always willing to pass along the knowledge that I've learned and uh, some of the greats, uh, the coaches that I've learned from, I, I pass that along too. It was just a wonderful time. The camaraderie was wonderful. I still miss it. I don't like what I see nowadays because it's changed so much. But you know what? A lot of old timers feel that way about baseball, football, whatever else. They, Oh, baseball isn't like it used to be. No, it might be better. So who knows? But I enjoyed my time. I enjoyed learning from you, Pards. I, I cherished those practice sessions. We sat up in the bleachers together and compared notes. Look at this. Look at that. Look at this guy. Look at that guy. You know, it was a learning experience just to sit there. I know you learned from Lichstein. And Lichstein learned from somebody else. And then I learned something from listening that you told him and it just went around in circles and it was a wonderful time. And, and it was a part of my life that I'll never forget. I loved it. It wouldn't have been done and it wouldn't have been near as enjoyable, but most of all a friend. Well, thank you. I appreciate that parts. What else you got? I think we got two minutes left, maybe three, maybe three. All right. Yeah. Well then let me, let me hit you up with this. Okay. <laughs> When when you first started doing lanes, what was your biggest fear on the tour? Well, Sam Baca fortunately carried me through those early years because he had bowled on the tour and he knew all the guys out there. And he told me a lot about all of them. He gave me a scattering report. What's Jack Beyond the Lillows like? Uh, what's Carmen Salvino like? What, what's this guy like? What's that guy like? 
And the number one thing was I was always involved in sports and baseball and football, basketball in high school. So I knew a lot about sports. And I knew that the most important thing about sports was the mental game. And when I watched a bowler and he go crazy, I would say to myself, that guy's not going to make it. And I watched a guy like Ritker, who was calm and cool, you know, all the time. He'd leave a ring in 10 and just walk back. I thought, then there's a superstar because the guy's got a great mind. And as it turns out, all the guys with great minds that had talent were all the superstars in baseball, football, basketball, golf, you name it. So I knew that I had to keep a good mind and and develop my mental game to put up with the crying and whining and everything I heard. In fact, I told a guy one time, I'm surprised he didn't hit me. He said, hey, the lefties are balling good this week. And I said to him, why are you worried about the lefties? You can't beat the righties, you know. <laughs> so, <laughs> you, had come, <laughs> you had to come up with some good lines like that because, uh, you know, that's what made me help, help me survive. <laughs> well, I want to say it's been a, an incredible honor to interview you. And again, I want everyone to know you had no idea what I was going to throw at you. So everything that what you're hearing, people, it was strictly right off the top of my head and right off the top of his head. And to me, it was one of the best shows we've done together. Well, I appreciate that part. You know, a couple of things I might have to re listen to the show and go, wow, I should have thought that one out. or I should have been uh, known what he's going to say because I might have said something different. But that was cold right off the top of my head. So let's go with it for now. And, Maybe we'll do this again someday, and uh, hopefully it'll, it'll be as good or better than the last one. Sounds great to me, and I look forward to, as always, the opportunity to speak with Blue Oil. <laughs> All right, Barnes. Well, I appreciate it. And, uh, another great job. Fan of fans, Joe O'Clock on the Wall tells me we are out of time. And we look forward to talking to all of you again next week. We'll have yet another interesting guest to talk to. And <laughs> thanks for our sponsors, Storm Bowling and Brad Edelman from the High Rollers, and also Dave Kowalski, the bowling guru from Michigan. And I want to congratulate him as he was just inducted into the Michigan Coaches Hall of Fame. And I want you to know that soon uh, we're going to start something new here on this show. It's going to be the Phantom Radio Junior Bowling Program. If anybody has any questions about it, we're going to be updating this every week. And just send me an email at Save Our Sport, S A V R S P R T, at yahoo.com, and we'll keep you updated. So for Phantom Radio, this is a Phantom. When you're down and troubled, and you need some love and care, and nothing. Oh, nothing is going right Close your eyes and think of me And soon I